Starting with the Sermon on the Mount this week. My most favorite sermon. I love the preaching of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's, let's review a little bit what we've gone through so far in the Gospel according to Matthew. What was the message of Jesus? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. Amen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How did Jesus' hometown of Nazareth react to his preaching? What did I think about it? Jenna? Try to throw him off a cliff. It's not like they weren't too pleased with his preaching, huh? So what this means, does this mean that if you go into the open air and preach the gospel, if the crowd responds negatively, does it mean you're doing something wrong? Well, it could be, but not necessarily. Not necessarily, because look what happened to Jesus. His own hometown. People who knew him all his life. 30 years. He went to preach to them, they didn't like it very much. Was the calling of the four fishermen... That's found in Matthew 4, Jesus' first calling to them. Yes, it was. It was his first calling to them. Was it the last time Jesus would call the four to leave their fishing jobs? No. Oh, I got you there. Don't trick question there. So it wasn't the last time. He would call them two more times in Luke 5 and in John 21. What is one way to define sin besides breaking God's law? Filling a natural desire in an unlawful way. That's right. Filling a natural desire given to you by God in a way that's not permitted by God in a natural or unlawful way. What are the four ways that, the, that temptation can come into your life? Jenna? Eyes. Eyes is one. Thoughts. Uh, okay, thoughts. Well, thoughts is, is where temptation resides, but you, the way that the, the temptation comes into your life. You get eyes is one of them. Ears. Okay. I can't see around the pole there, so if anyone's got a hand up, go ahead and say it. Caitlin? Memory. Memory of past sin, that's right. And demonic suggestion. So you have ears, eyes, demonic suggestion, and memories of past sin. What is a good definition of temptation? Jenna? That's right. Temptation is an opportunity presented to the mind to disobey God, but it's also an opportunity to have victory and continued obedience. Amen. What are the four parts to any kingdom? Ruler or ruling body. Subjects. Dominion. And laws. There we go. If you sin as a Christian, should you despair? What should you do? Confess, repent, Make uh, certain boundaries for the future. Think about how the temptation sin came to your life that time. And get up and keep on going. If you continue to overcome a certain temptation, what will happen eventually? You'll have victory over it. Less power, less pull on you. Temptation isn't as strong as it, as it would be. It will kind of fade away. But if you continue to give into a certain temptation, what will happen then? Power and pull over you grows and gets stronger and stronger until you basically become in bondage and the slavery to it. 
And you get, you get your despairing thoughts as if I can never, am I ever going to overcome this temptation, God? Am I ever going to overcome this sin? Well, yeah, you could. But now that you've, you've given into it so many times over a period of time, you're making it harder and harder on yourself. But you need to walk according to the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen? Okay, let's look at the Beatitudes this week. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated with his disciples, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who are before you. So we find here Jesus... Seeing the multitudes. Now, what multitudes are we talking about here? The ones that we see in verses 23 through 25 of Matthew 4. The ones who came from Syria, the ones who came from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. These people were crowding in on him. And we know Jesus was a smart open-air preacher. He didn't stay below the crowd. He didn't have an amphitheater. He went above the crowd. Why? So they could hear him better. It's quite that simple. And we're not talking about a mountain like we talk about the Rocky Mountains, like on the top of, or, you know, the mountains, the, the Appalachians, or, or even like Mount Everest or K2, the, the biggest mountains in the world. He's not on top of a mountain, and they're down at the bottom of the mountain. Okay, this is like a hill, all right? A small hill, maybe something like you see over here in, in Kentucky. And he's just trying to get elevation for the crowd so these multitudes can hear what he has to say. He doesn't have a P10 amplifier, okay? Uh, he doesn't have something to bounce his voice off of. Now, God can supernaturally, of course, gain him, give him the strength and open, out, open up their ears so they can hear, but he's using practical means to preach the gospel, and so should we. When we go into the open air to preach the gospel, we want to be practical about it. If I go to a college campus and I have different spots to choose from, I'm going to pick the spot where I have a decent-sized elevation to be above the crowd, where I have good acoustics, so my voice bounces off, I'm not wearing my voice out, a place where they can sit, probably shade, all to make it possible that as many people as possible can hear what I have to say. That's, that's what I think Jesus is doing here as well. So he saw the multitudes, he came on a mountain, he sat down. Now in Jewish tradition, I learned this from a Messianic Jewish uh, teacher, he taught me that when Jews sat down, it meant they were about to teach with authority. That's what it meant. So he didn't stand up on the mountain, he sat down. And he began to teach with authority. He opened his mouth, and he taught them. And what's the first word you see in all these Beatitudes here? Blessed. This blessed comes from the Greek word makarios, and it literally means blissful or happy. So Jesus is telling these people how they can be happy, how they can be blissful, how they can have a blessed life. And what we're about to go into here in these, these blesseds is things that are the complete opposite of what the world thinks will bring happiness into their life. The complete opposite. 
You're not going to have the world saying these things will bring happiness in their life. They think these things are miserable to them. But this is the blessed life. This is the life of a Christian. This is the life that Christians should be living, a blessed life. So let's look at the first one. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Does this mean that you don't have any money? This means you don't have a house or a car, that you're homeless? No, this means you're poor in spirit, means that you're, you're utterly destitute, you're, you realize your relative worthlessness in the sight of God, you realize, literally speaking, you're spiritually bankrupt before God. You have nothing to bring and say, God, here, let me pay my way into the kingdom. Because you can't earn your way into the kingdom. You can't pay your way into the kingdom. In fact, before God, as because of our past sins, we're spiritually bankrupt before God. And isn't, the, isn't this the first thing that any person needs to realize before they can even become a Christian? They have nothing to bring before God. They can't come before us and say, God, here you go. Let me in now. I've paid my ticket. Oh, that's not the way it works. Someone must realize that they're spiritually bankrupt before God. And, before, and until they become that, the kingdom of heaven will not belong to them. If they come to God like the, the uh, Pharisee, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, they say, God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy right here. Who went away justified? The Pharisee? Tashless beat his breast and said, forgive me, God, a sinner. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Until someone comes to that point, they think they're a good person. Hey, I haven't done much bad. I'm better than this guy over here. The kingdom of heaven will never belong to them. Will never belong to them. So you must first realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. And in a, in, in, in a temporal t- uh, terms, in a, a temporal analogy here, this is the spiritual poor in the spirit. But they must, be, must realize they're as poor as the widow was who bought the two mites. They must realize they're as poor, same word used here, poor, as Lazarus, who begged at the rich man's gate and was full of sores. People must realize that spiritually speaking, they're just like that widow. They're just like Lazarus. She's simply a beggar. And they come to God and beg for mercy. The next blessed is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn over what? Mourn over your, what we just talked about. Mourn over the fact that you're spiritually bankrupt before God. I mean, you realize you can't earn your way to heaven. You, you see there's no way that through your self-effort can get you into heaven. You realize that, that that's meaningless and you mourn over it. And there's different kinds of mourning or, or sorrow that the Bible talks about. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says there's a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. And let's see which one is the proper one for us to have. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9 says this, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry. Not, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to Repentance. For you are made sorry in a godly manner, that you may suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now get this, friends. When it comes to having sorrow over your condition, you shouldn't be sorrow because you're going to go to 
hell instead of heaven. You shouldn't be sorry because of the consequences of your sin. You shouldn't be sorry because your sins have found you out. You should be sorry with a godly sorrow. You're sorry because you've, you've sinned against God. You haven't loved Him like you should. If you have a worldly sorrow, that's sorry about your consequences of your actions, sorry you're going to go to hell instead of heaven, uh, sorry about your sin has found you out, it's going to make you look bad, that's worldly sorrow. And that kind of sorrow will lead to death. You come to God with a selfish heart, saying, God, you know, I'm so sorry because people found out about my sin. I'm so sorry, God, because it makes me look bad now. I'm so sorry, God, because I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. That's coming to God out of the selfishness. That's a worldly sorrow. It'll produce death in your life. But if you have a godly sorrow, which leads to repentance to salvation... So the only kind of sorrow that leads to salvation, friends, is a godly sorrow. You'll be sorry for the real reason, because you haven't loved God like you should. You haven't loved God like you should. And He deserves your love, He deserves your praise, He deserves your worship, He deserves your adoration, He deserves your whole being. And until you have that kind of sorrow, you, all you have is worldly sorrow. So whether it was before we became a Christian, or it's after we become a Christian... We should have godly sorrow. You know, I often wonder about these people who are living in secret sin, and then they get found out and they so-called repent. I wonder if they really have a godly sorrow. I wonder if they're just repenting just because they got found out. Or just because their ministry got taken away, as if they really had a ministry in the first place when they're living in secret sin. If it takes someone finding you out to get you to repent, chances are your repentance isn't real. Because we come to God for the real right reason is we want to love Him. We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. And love is the only proper reason to repent and have sorrow over your sin. So we must mourn with a godly sorrow. This morning is grief manifested. It may manifest itself in tears. It may manifest itself in just lying on the floor in brokenness. But it's mourning. And what happens to those who mourn as they should? It says they'll be comforted. They shall be, in future tense, shall be comforted. Now, of course, God, by His Holy Spirit, will comfort those who are broken in spirit. But Revelation 21 talks about the kind of comfort we will receive in the future. Revelation 21 4 says this, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that a wonderful promise from the Lord? That we don't have to have sorrow or crying or tears or pain anymore. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The people often think meek just means quiet. Or meek means someone who sits off in a corner and doesn't really... He's a shy person. They're meek. Uh, meek means not considering yourself more highly than you ought. It was also used in Greek literature to mean soft. It was used of a soft breeze that would touch your face, the wind. It was used of a medicine that was a very small amount of medicine that would only affect you a little bit or the right amount. It was a word that was used of horses who were once wild that were broken in. So meek really means, and from my perspective here, 
pointing all this information together. It means brokenness. It means power under control. Not power out of control, but power under control. Because wind that is too strong, that is not meek, what does it do? It destroys. A bronco that's not broken in, is it any good to, for work? Is it any good for, is this power any good to people who want to harness it? And taking too much medicine, what will that do to you? It'll kill you. Even if the medicine's good for you. I mean, my wife has been studying, you know, natural remedies, and we talked about different pits you can eat. And, and even if you, I mean, you have to eat a lot of them. But even the things that are natural in the environment, pits you can eat, or, or, or you know, and, and, and the apples, or the, uh, the seeds and apples, if you eat too many of those, even that can be toxic to you. Now, you have to eat a lot. But too much of it, can, even that can be toxic to you. We have this power called free will. And God expects us to have under control, under his control, submitted to him. So you see this person going along this path here. They're, they're broken. They're poor in spirit. They realize that they're relatively worthless. They're spiritually bankrupt before God. Now they're mourning over their state. And now they're becoming broken. Broken over their state. And as Psalm 51.17 says, the sacrifice has got a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's the sacrifice of God. Psalm 34, 18 says something similar. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. So they're, they realize they're spiritually bankrupt, they're mourning over their situation, and now they're broken over their situation. And it's only the broken, only the meek, who shall... Inherit the earth. Which earth are we talking about here? New heaven. The new earth. We're not talking about prosperity gospel garbage here. We're not talking about inheriting lots of possessions in this world. We're not talking about getting big houses and nice cars and having lots of money. We're talking about inheriting the land. That's really what the word earth here means. The land. What land are we inherit? The new Jerusalem. We went through the book of Revelation and we saw that this pop up many times. This land issue. We know it's always referring to the new Jerusalem. 2 Peter 3.13. Let's turn there just for a second. I'll read it to you. You can just listen if you don't want to turn there. It's fine. 2 Peter 3.13 says this. Nevertheless, we, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're looking forward to that. But it's only the meek, only the broken, who get to inherit that land. Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith, uh, starting in verse 13, says this. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly they seek a homeland. And truly, if they, had call, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So are you like the children of faith here in Hebrews 11? Are you, are you clinging on to the better place that God is preparing for you? Or are you holding on to this world? Are you holding on to your citizenship in this world 
and the things of this world? Or are you clinging and looking forward to the, the new place? Do you realize you're a pilgrim, an alien, a stranger in this place? Or do you really think this is your homeland? You have to have our mindset straight when it comes to these issues, friends. Because the reason why God was not ashamed to call them his people, they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. They did not look back to the place they left and think about that. They look forward to the new place that God was preparing for them. But it's only the broken, only the meek, who will receive such a place. So this person, is, he's, they realize they're spiritually bankrupt, they mourn, they're broken, and now they begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know what it says right here? It says, only for they shall be filled. You hunger and thirst for anything else in life, you'll never be fulfilled. You'll never be fulfilled. Sin has an endless pit. And the more you cling to sin, the deeper you'll go with it, and the less satisfying it'll be. But you go for more and more and more and deeper and deeper, and just less and less satisfying to your soul. Because God didn't make you to be satisfied to sin. He made you to be satisfied for righteousness. And it's only then you shall be filled. And the word used for filled here, the same word used for the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14. They ate their loaves and they had their fill. They were satisfied. The bread satisfied. The fish satisfied their stomach. And just as they were satisfied their stomachs, only we are satisfied in a spiritual sense when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. For only in living a righteous life are you truly fulfilling the purpose that God had for you in the first place. Only in living a righteous life. Psalm 42. I was listening to this song last night and I was worshiping, worshiping God. And this really should be the desire of our heart, friends. In Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And in doing so, friends, when your soul thirsts, not for things, but for a person, for God. If your soul thirsts and longs and hungers, you know how you feel when you haven't eaten in a couple days? Or when you have breakfast a little bit late or you miss dinner? Your stomach begins to become hungry? That's how you should be all the time for God. Hungering and thirsting after Him. And only hungering and thirsting after Him and for righteousness. Walking in His ways will your soul truly be satisfied. Will your soul truly be... And it's so... It, I pity. I used to live this way myself. The sinner, he goes for more and more sin each day. He never finds satisfaction. He goes deeper and deeper, but he never finds satisfaction. Doesn't matter how big or how small the sin is, he never finds satisfaction. But in hungering and thirsting and desiring strongly for righteousness, you shall be filled. We need to be like Moses was, who didn't consider the fleeting passing pleasure sandwich only lasts for a season but he rather sought the reproaches of Christ to be greater in riches to be greater in value to him than to deal with the fleeting passing pleasures of sin sin is pleasurable but it's not satisfying 
it's pleasurable only for a season. And then that season comes to an end, the Bible says in Galatians, that you will reap what you have sown. You sow to please the flesh, you reap corruption or destruction in. You sow to please the Spirit, you reap everlasting life. You must hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you see a turn in this person's life. They realize they're spiritually bankrupt. They mourn over their sin. They're broken over their sin. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, the Bible talks about this one woman who came to Jesus' feet, and he walked into this house, and they didn't offer to wash his feet. Most houses in those days, you know, you walked around with sandals on. You got dirt and dung on your feet and all kinds of nasty things, and they had nothing to offer to wash his feet. But this woman came in and washed his feet with her hair. You know what he said about her? He said, he, she has been forgiven much, loves much. I'll tell you, friends, when you realize the mercy of God towards you, you realize how wicked you have been. You can't help but to extend that mercy to others. Because God forbid, God who has forgiven me of my thousands and thousands of transgressions I've committed against him. That a brother or sister or an enemy sins against me and I can't forgive them. They're one crime. You know, Peter said, Lord, you know, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. And is Jesus saying stop at 490? As God has shown you mercy, friends, you show it to others. But not only that, even after you've been shown mercy, you really, truly, genuinely have the mercy of God. If you deny mercy to others, what will happen to you? We'll start in Matthew chapter 18 and see what happens to the unmerciful servant. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Jesus is asking this question. Or Peter's asking this question. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? Shall I forgive him up to seven times? No, I say, uh, not the seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with the servants. When he had began to settle accounts, he was brought to him one who owed ten thousand talents. Now, you have to understand how much money this is, friends. One talent. One. Okay? Not ten thousand. But one talent is worth more than 15 years of labor. 15 years of labor to pay off one talent. We're talking about 10,000 talents. So what's 10,000 times 15? 150,000 years. Is this servant ever going to repay this debt? Talk about spiritually bankrupt. He's in big time debt to God. That's what his kingdom of heaven is like. In verse 25, but he was not able to pay. But his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant there fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Can he really pay all? No. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. Did he say you have to pay it back? He forgave it of him. He wiped it clean as if it didn't exist. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is one day's wages. So 150,000 years worth of wages to 100 days worth of wages. Who owes more? 
Who owes more? The servant who, who was forgiven by the king, by the master. And he went to his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Is he able to pay all? He sure is. hundred days worth of work? You can get it paid off in probably five years if you wanted to. Even if you took your time paying it off. And he would not. But when it threw him into prison, too, he, should, he should pay the debt. So his fellow servants saw what he had done. They were grieved, very grieved. And came and told their master what, that all that had been done. That his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? Just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So, my heavenly Father also will do to each of you, talking to the twelve disciples now, to each of you, from his heart, who from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, wait a minute. Now, I thought the servants... The wicked servant, the unmerciful servant, thought his, his, he was pardoned. Did the king reinstall his debt? Yes. He sure did. Mm, I guess it's not once saved, always saved, is it? So I guess when the Bible says God removes your transgressions east from the west, does that mean that you forgot about them? God doesn't have a bad memory, friends. He is not holding your record against you when he forgives you. And if you refuse to stay in the faith, he'll bring your record back into court. And the man, you pay all. And what's the payment for sin? What's the wages for sin? Death. What kind of death? The second death. Being cast into the lake of fire. <laughs> Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, or future tense, receive mercy. You must be merciful to the end, friends. And then in the end, we shall receive the final mercy, which is eternal life for all eternity. Even in Matthew 6, 13, 14, 15. For if you forgive men their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So this person was spiritually bankrupt. They mourn over their sin. They are broken over their sin. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They become merciful because they've been shown mercy. And now they're pure in heart. This is the Christian life, isn't it? This is the Christian life. You know, oftentimes, and you know, when I first became a Christian, you heard about the Romans' road of salvation, which is really a really shallow way of sharing the gospel with somebody. If you ask me, this is the Matthews' road of salvation, which is the true highway to Jesus Christ. Without, without being pure in heart, you will not see God. Well, you see Him in judgment, but you won't see Him in kindness and mercy. This is what Hebrews twelve fourteen says. Follow peace, pursue peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. No man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 5, 9, he became the author of eternal life to all those who obey him. Who obey him. Obedience is required. 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 3 and verse 11, says this. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we did to you. So they may establish your hearts blameless in holiness 
before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual morality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us the Holy Spirit. When someone rejects the preaching and teaching of holiness, realize this, they don't reject you. They reject God. Verse 7 again, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his sinful spirit? No, his Holy Spirit, that you may live holy. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They. Blessed are the peacemakers. So this person is spiritually bankrupt, they mourn, they're broken, they hunger and thirst righteous, they're filled, they're merciful, they obtain mercy, they're pure in heart, they shall see God. Now they're becoming peacemakers. That's talking about someone who goes between, you know, maybe uh, Korea and America and sits down at a peace meeting and, you know, makes a, a uh, you know, peace treaty here and makes sure the countries aren't fighting anymore. You know, this is talking about the most important peace man could ever have. Peace with God. See, a true Christian is a peacemaker. A peacemaker between men and God. This is called the ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter 5. The ministry of reconciliation. Which we're all required to take a part in. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 18. Now all things are of God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's your ministry. Reconciliation. Helping lost sinners find peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So just like the ambassador goes to Russia, back in the Cold War era, and tries to make peace between Russia and America. He's an ambassador for America to Russia. We are ambassadors for God to sinners to get them to be reconciled to God, to find peace through the cross, just as Colossians says. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies 
in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in a body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So peace is made with God when a sinner trusts in the blood of Jesus Christ and they turn from their sins. Is this done so they can continue in sin? Something maybe establishes holy and blameless in his sight. Not continuing in sin, but being pure in heart. So we find, we help people find peace with God. We are peacemakers between God and men. Ambassadors, the ministry of reconciliation. But not only that, I think a natural peace is important as well. Let's just read Romans chapter 12 real quick. Romans chapter 12, and uh, we'll start in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, which means the chance is not possible, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This means we compromise the message. This means we compromise the delivery of the message. This means we can't rebuke. This means people won't get upset with us. No, it means with all that's within your power, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Live at peace with all men. Blessed are those. So they're peacemakers now. They're trying to reconcile men to God. Not God to men. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. God is fine right where he is. Men who are sinners. Sin is the problem. God's wrath isn't the problem. God's anger isn't the problem. God's holiness and justice isn't the problem. The sinner's sin is the problem. That's taken care of on the cross. If the sinner will trust in Christ, the sin will be washed away, not be held against man longer. So we're reconciling sinners to God, not the other way around. Some theologies have it backwards. Oh, God is so angry, God is so wrath, he has his wrath satisfied, and until his wrath is satisfied, until he beats up someone for you in your place, you can't be reconciled to him. No, it's the other way around. Read 2 Corinthians 5 again, 18 to 20. Reconciling the world to him. Not him to the world, the world to him. It's a very important distinction there. So as a peacemaker, what do you think is going to happen as a peacemaker? What's going to happen? What's going to happen when you go out and try to be a peacemaker between sinful men and a holy God? We'll see what verse 10 says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, just as 2 Timothy 3.12 says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. 2 Timothy 3.12. But what, what should our response be when we're persecuted? Let's look at 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. In verse 13, what should our response be when we're persecuted? Should we respond and, and hate? Well, I think Romans 12 took care of that. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, actually. Let's start in verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So some, some, something strange, some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. 
Sounds familiar. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. We should rejoice. We should rejoice because we're blessed. And we should expect it according to verses 12 and 13. That's some strange thing that happens to us when the world hates us. So it makes me wonder, these Christians who see the world hating us when we preach, and we're trying to become a reconciler, a minister of reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God, we're out there being peacemakers. It makes me wonder, these Christians who are so astounded at how people are acting towards us, they think it's a strange thing that a fiery trial will happen. That's your persecuted for righteousness' sake. It makes you wonder if they really know God or not. They're not partaking in his sufferings. But, but Paul's prayer in Philippians was that I may know the power of his resurrection and I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. That should be our prayer as well. The second part of the prayer is hard. The first part's easy. Oh, the power of his resurrection. But the second part, the fellowship of his suffering. Not as easy to endure that, friends. But make it our whole prayer, both parts. So you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11. So persecution in verse 11, doesn't, verse 10, doesn't necessarily mean physical persecution. Persecution there means to drive out, to pursue, to try to apprehend, try to lay hold on. And if persecution comes, maybe we should flee. Maybe like Paul did, we should run to it like Paul did. It's all the God's leading. That's how we should do it. And in verse 11, we're talking about verbal persecution now. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now when someone says something nasty to us, should we respond back in nastiness? If they insult us, should we insult them back? No, no, we shouldn't insult them back. In fact, 1 Peter 3 addresses this issue. Starting in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. And those who defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. One thing that better be true, friends, is that when you are suffered, when you're persecuted, when people say things about you that are nasty or evil or wicked, they better be false. They better really have no reason to say those things about you. Because you're not blessed if you suffer for real evil. Suffering for righteousness' sake is when you're blessed. But if you suffer for sin, you're not blessed. They're blessed at all. But we should, be, we should remember, friends, these things are going to happen. People are going to say things about us that are not true. They're going to spread rumors about us. And I guess we have to decide when that time comes, because it will come. Are we going to stand up for ourselves? Are we going to try to defend our character? We have to make a decision about that, friends. Are you your defender or is God your defender? Because if you're no reputation for Jesus Christ, like he was for God, it shouldn't matter what people think about you or what they say about you. Just remember, these things are going to happen. Think about what was said in Revelation 11:10 about the two witnesses. And we know they're on fire for God. We know they're walking in the Spirit. 
can this be said of you? And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them after they've been killed. Make merry and send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. If you died, if you were killed, would the sinful world be happy? Good question to ask us. Do they feel tormented by your presence on earth? Because as we'll see next week, salt gets in a wound, that hurts. That hurts. People felt tormented by them in their words. And verse 12 sums it up. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now why should you be rejoicing and exceedingly glad according to this verse? There's two, two reasons. One, great is your reward in heaven. We're aliens and strangers in this place. We don't care about this place. We don't reside here. Number two, you have good company. You have good company. Tradition tells us Jeremiah the prophet, the weeping prophet, was stoned to death. Tradition says that Isaiah the prophet was sawn in half. Not the chainsaw and get over quickly. He was sawn in half. Imagine that. As it says in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith here, this is, you know, we got 1 Corinthians 13 is the, the love chapter, Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. In Hebrews 11, uh, starting in verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and dens and caves of the earth. See, in America, we have it kind of cushy. Kind of cushy. But it may not always be that way. Are you prepared to let go of the things of the world? If and when that time comes, your comfort... Or will you forsake Christ and go with the world just to have your earthly comfort for 75 to 100 years? The choice is yours, friends. When Stephen preached, the God preached on, in Acts chapter 7, he didn't have a nice little funeral. He was stoned to death. But he accused him and said, you and your fathers persecuted the prophets and stoned them. Let me read you one more passage real quick. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. And then we'll be done. <clears throat> Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors, not to the we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put death to deeds of the flesh, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and are children than heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So, to sum up, we have this spiritual bankruptness and this mourning over sin. 
this brokenness over sin, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a minister of reconciliation, and because of that, enduring persecution for righteousness' sake, having to say all kinds of false things against us for righteousness' sake, but we're in good company. And this is the blessed life. This is the happy life for the Christian. Not that the world doesn't seem very happy. It doesn't seem very blessed. But this is the blessed and happy life to the Christian who knows God and has obeyed his gospel. All right. Open the floor for questions, objections, or adding things to the message. Anyone? Hello, Tracy. Yeah, uh, since I've been open air preaching, I've noticed that uh, a couple times uh, professing Christians will come up to me in the open air and they'll try to use the Beatitudes as a refutation against the way that I'm preaching. So, well, why aren't you meek? Why aren't you poor in spirit? Uh, why aren't you these things that are in the Beatitudes? Uh, what would you say about that? Oh, well, I am those things that are in the Beatitudes. I don't think they understand the Beatitudes. Right. They see the word blessed. They, they expect you to talk about the good things. Right. But these are good things. Right. Not to them, though. They just focus on the first word, blessed. Well, wait a minute now. Are you broken in spirit? Are you meek? Are you a minister of reconciliation? Have you been persecuted for righteousness' sake? Are you pure in heart? No, I'm not pure in heart. I sin every day in thought, word, and deed. So, people, they, they focus on maybe one word in a passage, and they think they've made a point. Just like the whole issue of with the, you know, he without sin cast the first stone. Do they even look at that passage? Who has physical stones in their hand ready to kill a sinner? And we tell them the same message that Jesus told her. Go and sin no more. Yeah, so people often will do that, Tracy, they'll proof text things. But when they bring up the Beatitudes in the open air, you can turn right back around on them. And they're not living the blessed life at all. They're living the cursed life. Yeah, I usually tell them that the Beatitudes doesn't instruct us how to preach. Right. It instructs us how to live. That's true. And uh, the way we preach is to be bold as lions. Just to cry aloud and spare not. Right. Those are passages in our preaching. Amen. It does give you the results of preaching. I'm trying to be a peacemaker, though. Right, exactly. Gives you the results of it. And if they're not enduring those results, according to you know, 2 Timothy 3.12, maybe they're not desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Maybe that's a problem. Yes. Yes, it does. There's power under control. Um, the tongue has the power of life and death. We have a lot of power in our hands. We need to be meek, we need to be broken, and we need to have that power under control, subjected under God's control, using our free will rightly, and walking in the Spirit. And if we do that, we won't have problems. Right? Yes. Right. That's good. Yeah, I mean, the Bible calls the, the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. And you can cut someone up pretty bad with the sword of the Spirit. Again. Yeah. That's good. Good analogy with the scalpel there.
Yeah. And the Bible does say, First Peter 3.15, I just read it, to be always prepared to give an answer, but do it with gentleness and reverence. Yeah, so I think the gentleness there is talking about the gentleness towards the, the hearer, but the reverence is towards God. So reverence for God, gentleness towards the hearer. Well, so gentleness doesn't necessarily mean niceness or a lack of rebuke, but it doesn't mean you don't consider yourself more high than you ought. So, I mean, if they meant niceness, then I guess Jesus didn't fulfill that, and you know, the Baptist didn't fulfill that. And yes, or the needle, even the needle beforehand yeah. to get the medicine to get them to go under. That's that's painful too. <laughs> Medicine. Medicine. Right. Yeah, they, they, usually they, they give them a bunch of alcohol or something like that, too. Right. 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 Yeah, I remember when this, this tooth right here is almost knocked out and it's playing football, and everything is just hanging by threads, and my lips were all swollen up, I was bleeding. And I went to the dentist, and he got this big needle of Novocaine. And I was in pain, man. And he shot me like five times with some Novocaine to get my... You know, my gums and everything to go see. I was just, you know, I couldn't even feel anything then. But that Novocaine hurt. It was for my good because if he didn't give me that Novocaine, I would have had a lot more pain when he was pushing that tooth back in there and, you know, putting it back into place. Questions or you want to add? Oh, Tracy? Yes, like uh, we were talking before about having our heart in the right place. Uh, yeah, the whole time you were, you were preaching on that, brother, I kept thinking of the same verse that uh, Jesus said that uh, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Right. It's just so true. If you have your, if you treasure the things of this world, that's where your heart is. It's not with God. If you treasure the things of God, then your heart's with God, not with the world. Uh, some people think that they can do both. They think that they can have their heart with God and have their treasure in the world, and uh, it's just not the case. Can't serve two masters. But can't serve two masters. It's really important. Amen.